Last week, we considered that Christianity is all about the gospel. Paul, after all the things that he has said in those first 14 chapters in 1 Corinthians, he says, let me come back to this topic. Let me come back to this truth that is of utmost importance. He says it's all about the gospel. The good news of what Jesus has already done, what he fulfilled, the promises that God made that Jesus fulfilled through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But we also learned this very important lesson that merely believing in the gospel message is insufficient. It is necessary for us to hold firmly to, to apply the word that we have received and believed. In fact, Paul says, if you believe but do not hold to it, do not apply it, do not live by this, you have believed in vain. And this week, we'll see that Jesus' resurrection is the critical foundation of the Christian faith. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 34. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? 
I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. It was common in the first century, just as it is now in the 21st century, to not believe in a bodily resurrection. And that prevailing mindset, that worldview of that time, made its way into the Corinthian church. There were those in the church that did not believe or were at least expressing doubts about the resurrection. And Paul refutes them by presenting his arguments based on personal experience. He says, if Christ has not been from the, raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching would be a false witness since we would be promoting a lie. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, sin and death, the wages of sin, would not be defeated and we would still be in our sins. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. We would grieve. I mean, our grief when somebody passes away would be permanent if we had no hope that they would be risen in Christ. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is futile. Christ's resurrection is fundamental to the Christian faith. Before we get to the implication of Jesus' resurrection, let's make sure we understand the nature of Jesus' resurrection as opposed to others who came back to life after they died. Because the Bible has stories like that. Right? It tells us that. When the prophets Elijah and Elisha each of them, when they prayed, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, or the widow's son, or Lazarus, when Peter prayed for Tabitha, who died because of an illness, or Paul prayed for Eutychus, who died because he fell and from the second-story window, and he fell and he died, all of these dead were brought back to life. The difference is that each of these people came back to life only for a relatively short period of time and then died again. We don't have Eutychus on the earth today. We don't have Tabitha on the earth today. Jesus, however, was raised from the dead for eternity. He will never die again. And it is that distinction between Jesus and the others that makes Jesus the first fruit of the resurrection. That's why it's referred to like that. So don't be, when you read about those that are raised from the dead, and then you read about Jesus being raised from the dead, don't think of them as the same thing. Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection that we are now also able to participate in. Because Jesus coming back to life from the dead establishes a very important truth for those who believe in him. 
for those who hold firmly to the gospel message. And that truth is this. We will be made alive in Christ. We will be made alive. We will be resurrected in Christ for eternity. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee, the firm foundation, the divine promise that those who are in Christ will also be resurrected when he comes, when he returns to the earth to gather to himself those who belong to him. That's the promise. That's the statement. Christ will return, and when he returns, he will gather to him those who belong to him, which means that when Jesus was resurrected, it is giving us the guarantee. You will be also similarly resurrected. That is the promise that the Lord is giving us. When we are resurrected at Christ's return, it is so that we may reign victorious with him over everything. God will once again be over all. God will be all in all. And you see this. You see, God created the earth. And he gave it to Adam to rule and reign over to have dominion over it. God placed man in the garden and he said, you are, you, you are to rule. You are to have dominion over all of these things, all over all the creatures, over all the earth. I'm giving this into your hand. But Adam, in his disobedience, as he disobeyed God, he essentially handed over his authority and his dominion to the devil. And the devil comes to kill to steal, to destroy, to usurp the authority that the Lord had given to men. Jesus paid the price. He redeemed that which was lost. He won back, and not, not with this big conflict or fight or defeat in that sense, but because he paid the price for our sins. The sin that, was, uh, that allowed that authority to be given away Jesus paid for it and was now able to restore all authority to God who gives life, freedom, and peace. In place of where the devil comes to kill, to steal, and destroy, God says, I give you life and I give it to you more abundantly. God says, I come and I set you free so that you do not have to return to a yoke of slavery, to the sin that was so easily entangling you. You are set free. And you do not have to be anxious in any way anymore. I give you peace. Adam, notice this contrast, right, between the first man, Adam, and Jesus. Sin and therefore death came through Adam. Resurrection and therefore eternal life came through Jesus. You may have heard some people say, well, why should I be held responsible for Adam's sin? Right? You can argue that point. You can say anything you want. But there was an inheritance, there was a legacy, there was an impact, there was an effect of all, to all humanity that came through this sin. But if you're not willing to receive or not willing to acknowledge that sin came through one man, then you would be hard-pressed to acknowledge that salvation has come through one man. Because you didn't do anything to deserve your salvation or to merit your freedom or to receive the grace of God. Although sin came through one man, the Bible is making very clear, salvation has come through one man, 
Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done, resurrection and eternal life and everything that he has made possible, human beings are to live their lives on earth in anticipation of their own resurrection in Christ because Jesus will return to complete the restoration that was begun with his resurrection. When he was resurrected from the dead, he said, I have conquered sin, death. I have defeated the devil. I have taken back all authority. But that process of restoration has continued from that point and will continue until he returns again. When he returns, when he returns, all things will be fulfilled. And there will be that completion of that restoration, of that process, of the way in which the Lord is bringing all things back to himself. So that means that we have a responsibility to live our lives on earth now in this in-between period in anticipation of that resurrection, in anticipation of that completion of God's restoration. The whole Bible is the story of that restoration. Right? Man, having been created for God, having sinned and fallen away from God, then God himself providing the means by which man could be reconciled to God, and all of history is all about God restoring humanity to himself. He created us for that. Which, but, but the sad reality, however, is that those who do not live in the light of the knowledge and implication of Jesus' resurrection, those who do not live in light of eternity, live as if they will die tomorrow because that's all they can do. And so what is the truth for us? We must live in light of eternity. Paul says in verse 29, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? When you read that sentence, and you read this in the context of what he's talking about, it is not at all clear who exactly Paul is referring to when he talks about people who are being baptized for the dead. There is absolutely no biblical basis for anyone to be baptized for someone else, especially someone else who has already died. There is no basis for that. The Bible does not ask for that. The Bible does not describe that as a way in which we would come to the Lord. The Bible does not say that that is the purpose of baptism at all. The best understanding then of this verse is that there were some people in the Corinthian church who had some erroneous beliefs about both baptism and life after death. And they were mixing up things or doing something or affecting this. And maybe it wasn't even people in the church itself, but there were at least some group of people in the context that the Corinthians were in who were doing these kinds of things. So the reason Paul brings this up is not to say, go ahead and get baptized for the dead. That's not his point. He's not saying, that I'm giving you a new doctrine. Right? That's not the purpose of baptism or the purpose of Christ's salvation. The reason that, God, that Paul is making this point is that he's saying, even those who don't fully understand God's truth realize that there's something beyond life on this earth. They're understanding that there's something more than just we live and we die and that's it, Amen. right? And so he's pointing out 
that there, this recognition, this realization is there. Now, people at the time of the Corinthians, even before and even you know, well before that, were not believing in the resurrection. In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, we see that the Sadducees, who were religious leaders in, in Israel, they were religious Jewish leaders, they were a group of people who did not believe in the resurrection. They believed in, in keeping the law, they believed in honoring Yahweh, but they did not believe that there was a resurrection. And so in Matthew chapter 22, when the Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection, tried to trap Jesus with their question about marriage at the resurrection. How will, what will marriage be like in the resurrection? You know, and they're trying to trap him and sort of make him say something that you know, would be illogical. Jesus replies to them, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. God is the God of the living. Just imagine what it would be if all this plan of God was to say, I create human beings just to have them die. Rather, he said, I create human beings so that they would live and that they would live with me. God is saying, I want human beings to be with me for eternity. That's the purpose of God's creation of human beings. So it's not for death, it's for life. See, so there is this life that we would look forward to. Those who don't believe in life after death, and this is important, they are ultimately constrained to put all their hopes and dreams in their life on earth. <clears throat> if you believe that your life is going to end at whatever point in this earth, you can do whatever you want, but in some way your life on this earth is going to end at some point. If you believe that that was it, that was the sum total of it, and that was the end of everything, then you will try to maximize every day that you can. You will pursue everything that you possibly can to stay alive. There's an there's a article recently about this guy who's in his 40s, but he's doing everything that he possibly can to have the body of an 18-year-old. He's taking all this these supplements, he's doing all this exercise regimen, he's doing all of this stuff. He gets you know, blood tests done every I think every week. So he's doing all of this stuff so that he will be as an 18-year-old. His body will function that way, his, you know, all of that. And his idea and his statement is, you know, you can essentially live longer or, you know, live forever is what he's claiming to do. But here's the point. If you thought that this is all there is, this earth, this life is all there is, you would try to maximize it. You would try to live that way. See, those who don't believe in resurrection, those who don't believe in eternity with Christ, must make the most of their uncertain time on earth. Because none of them are guaranteed that they'll have the next day. Even if they are, they are truly having the body of an 18-year-old, you know, something could happen. There could be a storm, there could be an accident, something could happen. 
So there's such uncertainty in the world that the only thing that you, if you have that philosophy, that worldview, the only thing that you can do is to eat, to drink, and pursue your desires because there's nothing else to live for or to hope for. Don't condemn anybody who you think is just living that way. Don't say, ah, oh, look at them. They're just indulging in themselves. Maybe you are even feeling a little jealous. You know? they, I, I, I've had friends who've said that, right? Who said, I don't want to be a Christian because I can't enjoy all these things that these guys are enjoying. Right? And, they, and you look at those people and you see that and you think, oh, they seem to be having the time of their lives. And I, here I am going to church on a Sunday morning. Um, I, you, you, you can be tempted to think like that, to feel like that. Or you can be condemning of them, be judgmental. Oh, look at me, I'm living like this. I'm living for God. I'm disciplining my life. You know, when you, you're just doing whatever. Mm, God's going to judge you. No. They have nothing else. If the worldview, if the mindset is, this world is it, they have their rewards in this life. That's all they have. Instead, share with them. Share with them there is much more than our fleeting breath on this earth. Share with them of the glory of God. Share with them of what Jesus did. Share with them about resurrection. Share with them that God created them so that he could be with them and they could be with him for eternity. Share with them in such a way that they'll say, oh, there's something more that I need to live for than just my eating and my drinking and my all of this stuff. Share the gospel message with Jesus, with, with, with people sharing about Jesus' resurrection and therefore about their own resurrection so that they will have hope. It's because they don't have hope that they're living like that. Let them have hope. Share with them what Jesus is about. But even as I say this about everybody out, you know, who's not believing in Jesus, I want to give you a word of warning because in what Paul is saying, there is a word of warning for each one of us who profess to believe in Christ Jesus, who profess to believe in the gospel message. And what's that warning? We must be careful that we don't live as functional atheists or agnostics because if we say that we are the children of God who are eager to be with our Father for eternity, and yet all we are doing on earth is figuring out how we can maximize our income, enjoy our food and drink, strive to live in the lap of luxury, seek to be entertained, and look for opportunities to indulge our passions and desires, then we're not living in the light of eternity at all. We're not living any differently than those folks who have no knowledge of or who have no belief of the resurrection. We're living just like that. We are living for this earth and for the things of this earth. We are living as if there is no resurrection and no eternal life with God. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't work hard. And as you work hard diligently with integrity, you know, as a child of God, faithful, persevering, you will have increases, you will have income, you will have things that are material possessions, 
You will have all of these things that the Lord brings into your life. All that may happen, but that should not be your pursuit. That should not be what has your heart. That should not be what you're living for. You should be living for the Lord. And maybe when you received the gospel message, when you first heard the gospel message, when you first gave your life to Jesus, you were wildly enthusiastic to live for God and not for the world. You said, oh, God, I'm all in. And then all the things started to happen. Over time, the influences of your friends, maybe even your family, the influence of your colleagues at work, your own fears. Oh, if I don't do this, what will happen? What will happen to me in my retirement? I better save. I better do. I better work. You know, what will happen? Your concerns about the future, the cares of this world, your flesh that says, hey, feed me, indulge me, satisfy me. It never will be. Your flesh will never be satisfied. But you will hear that. And the devil may have gotten to you to take your eyes off of Jesus and to put them on the world. To take your eyes off of Jesus and to put them on yourself. To take your eyes off of Jesus and to look at everything else that does not matter. That is not important. You know, when Paul states in verse 33, bad company corrupts good character. He's actually not quoting scripture. This was a phrase or a line that was from a Greek poet named Menander. And Paul is quoting what the people would have heard or known or seen to make this point that even non-Christians recognize that what is influencing you will transform you. What is it that is influencing your thinking? What is it that is influencing your behavior? What is it that is influencing or taking your time? What is it that is influencing how you spend your money? What influences you will transform you. It'll change you into its likeness. If God is influencing you, if the word of God is influencing you, if the Holy Spirit is influencing you, if the church is influencing you, if your brothers and sisters are influencing you, that's what will start to transform you. But if it is not, he says good comp bad company corrupts good character. We must be careful about how we live. Paul warns us in verse 19, if only for this life, defined by financial gain and worldly pleasures, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you think you're a good Christian, and all you're focused on is this earth, and this life on this earth, and you say, God will help me to accomplish all these worldly objectives. And God will preserve my life and give me strength and do all of this so that I can retire with strength. If this is what you have put your hope in, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because you see, we respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by preparing for resurrection.
That's how we have to live. We respond and apply the word of God that we hear and what the Lord is challenging us to by saying, Lord, every single day I am preparing for resurrection. I'm preparing to be in eternity with you. How do I get there? How does that happen? First and foremost, there is an entry point. There is the fact that I need to receive and believe this gospel message. I need to know that Christ was resurrected from the dead and why he was resurrected from the dead. But when I receive that, when I believe that, when I hold firmly to that, when I start to apply and walk in the ways that the Lord has ordained for me, oh Lord God, I am preparing for eternity. I am preparing to see those that have also fallen asleep in Christ so that when I am joined with them, I will rejoice with them. And I'll say, oh, our hope has been fulfilled. Our hope has come together. All that we were hoping for, not wishful thinking, eagerly anticipating and expecting, has come to pass. Oh, life on earth is great because it's just a transit. That's a short period. We go, okay, no problem, because I'm preparing for something else. I'm preparing to be with Jesus for eternity. Amen. The best way to live our lives on earth now is to prepare to live with Christ for eternity. Paul says in verse 34, come back to your senses as you ought. It's always about our thinking, isn't it? The prodigal, when he was away from his father's home, and living in the worst possible way. The Bible says he came back to his senses. When we are caught up in our sin, when we are running and pursuing all the things of this world, and we think that's what we need, power, position, prestige, riches of all kinds, that's what we need. Someone needs to hear my name, right? If that's what you think that life is about, oh, the Bible says, come back to your senses. What is the right thinking that we can have? It is to be in Christ Jesus. It is to know him as the resurrected Lord of our life. It is to say, oh Lord God, in you and in you alone, I have life eternal. And therefore, life on earth has meaning. Life on earth has purpose. Life on earth is time of preparation. I will grow. I will be self-controlled. I will be disciplined. I will be a disciple of Christ, maturing in Christ and in discipleship daily. Oh, Lord God, I will do this so that I may be prepared for eternity. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, your word gives us all that we need Lord, for this life, but most importantly, it prepares us for the life to come. Father, we sang in our worship time earlier today that, Lord, we look forward to that time when you are forever ours. But I thank you, Lord, that your love is such that you say to us, you are forever mine. That you draw us to yourself and you embrace us and you gather us together. And your desire, Lord, when the word says that you desire that none should perish, but that all may be saved. That's not just a 
a nice-to-say statement. It is truly your heart that all people will be saved and will spend eternity with you, that none should perish, that all will be resurrected to life in Christ Jesus. Lord God, make it so. Let us live our lives on earth today in light of eternity. Let us be prepared, Lord, for resurrection. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. So, Lord, prepare us. Prepare us. Make us ready so that, Lord, when you return and you gather to yourself all those who belong to you, we will join with all our brothers and sisters. Here, Lord, even with these, our brothers and sisters that we see right now and others that we don't even know about, we will join with all of them in the body of Christ and rejoice with you for all eternity. Oh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>